Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Thomas M. Murray, Ph.D. P.E. Dr. Murray is an Emeritus Professor at Virginia Tech, Blacksburg, Virginia. Murray joined Virginia Tech in 1987 after 17 years at the University of Oklahoma. A specialist in structural steel research and design, Murray was responsible for the construction of large laboratories at the University of Oklahoma and Virginia Tech. He serves on numerous national committees, including those within ASCE, AISC, and AISI. In 2002, Murray was elected to the National Academy of Engineering, one of the highest honors that can be accorded an engineer. In 2007, he received the AISC Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2010, he was given the AISC Gerhard Heyer Award for Excellence in Education. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for agreeing to take the time to talk to me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. So what attracted you to the civil engineering field? Well, as a kid, I used to like to build things. When I went to the university, I originally uh, was in electrical engineering. Oh. And I, uh, I took a course on capacitors and inductors and got a good grade in it, but I, it was all religion. So I decided to take a look at a different field and uh, studied a catalog of entire summer and finally decided that civil engineering was what I wanted to do, especially on the construction or design side. So you did your undergrad work at Iowa State University? Yes, I did. Are you originally from Iowa? I um, was born in Dubuque, raised in Waterloo, ended up going to school in Ames and then moved to Des Moines and then left the, top, the state. Did you go straight from your undergrad work to grad school or did you go out and work for a while? Uh, I worked two years for Pittsburgh Des Moines Steel in Des Moines, Iowa mm -hmm. in a training program and part of that was to spend about six months uh, at a uh, tank farm in Cahokia, Illinois, which is a little bit south of East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So I understand you were involved in the construction of the St. Louis Arch. Well, very, very little bit. <laughs> uh, uh, Even a little bit must have been exciting. Yeah. For many years I'd been high on, up higher on the outside of the arch than I had been on the inside. Really? Right. Uh, Pittsburgh Des Moines had the contract to fabricate it and erect it. The Des Moines office was in charge of erection and so I did a little bit of work there with the traveling derricks that went up the sides of it. Mm -hmm. And then when I was sent to field in Cahokia, anytime it rained or we couldn't work, we, myself and the foreman, went over to the arch site and went up on the outside of it. But you now have been on the inside of it. Yes, I have. One, <laughs> one time. <laughs> one time. Right. Me too. One time. Uh, so you did your doctorate work at the University of Kansas. Correct. Then started your teaching career at the University of Oklahoma. Right. Uh, how did you decide that you wanted to teach there? Well, I, I graduated from KU in summer of 1970, interviewed a course during the winter of 70, and there weren't many faculty positions open. That was the best of the lot, so I took it and <laughs> I never regretted it. The last year of your tenure at the University of Oklahoma, you were a visiting professor at the U.S. Air Force Academy. How did that come about? Well, I had a, uh, a graduate student who was an Air Force officer and went back and taught at the academy. They, at that time, had a program called uh, Distinguished Visiting Professors, where they brought in five civilian professors each year. We were the only civilians on the faculty and he nominated me for one of those positions. I went out and interviewed and got it and uh, that's why I went there. Good experience? Excellent experience, mm -hmm. yes. Yes, they treated us very, very well and uh, had a number of very, very interesting events. <laughs> 
They treated us very, very well. (laughs) Well, they they had a list of uh, 20 or 25 um, things they wanted us to do so that we knew what the Air Force was all about. Mm -hmm. One of them was to tutor the football team. So I went went to Notre Dame with the team and and acted as a tutor. Oh, that's Uh, interesting. And there were some others that uh, I didn't have the opportunity to do uh, for various reasons, but it it was... It was a very good experience. So then you joined Virginia Tech in 1987, uh, where you've remained ever since. What is it about Virginia Tech that kept you there all those years? Well, first I was I was hired to start an experimental program. They they didn't have much of a program in structural engineering, and I literally bought a hammer, <laughs> and then and then uh, planned and, and managed to direct the construction of a laboratory. Mm-hmm. The governance of Virginia Tech is quite a bit different than the other schools I'd been at in that very little politics. It was a military school, and so it was, it was pretty much operated in that manner. Not, not that we were dictated to, but there just wasn't much politics, and I really liked that. Very good students, of course, and a beautiful campus and a very nice area to live in. So it was all, everything worked out very well, and uh, good faculty colleagues, and a well-funded program at the time. And so I, this this lab that you built, is, is this the lab that's now named after you? Yes, that's yes? correct. But you had to wait a year after you retired for them to name it after you. Yes, uh, found out at the very last minute that uh, th- there was a seminar, retirement seminar planned, and very last minute it was found out that Virginia Tech had two rules. One is you had to be dead. Oh. To have a building named after you, or you had to be retired for one year. So I took the second option. Yes, I think you chose very well there. <laughs> and therefore, there was a seminar, but the naming was actually a year later. You're also the you were named the Montague Betts Professor of Structural Steel Design. Uh, were Montague and Betts important figures in the steel industry? Montague Betts was a steel fabricator in Lynchburg, Virginia. Okay. Montague died a number of years before Betts <laughs> funded this professorship. Betts was a, uh, Ping Betts was a very, very strong alumnus of Virginia Tech and funded this professorship, I guess, in 1985, and I was the inaugural. Oh, you were the inaugural. Professor, yeah. Their fabricating facility in Lynchburg actually did a lot of fabrication of the World Trade Center towers. Oh. And Ping Betts was very, very proud of that. I'm sure. Yeah. It's now Banker Steel. Oh, okay. It's located there. But Ping Betts died at the age of 95 or so about a year and a half ago. Oh, so recently. Uh, he was blind for the last 20, 25 years, but he still came to office every day until the last six months of his life. What's the most interesting research project you've ever done? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I did. I have done a lot of work on moment end plates, and that's probably the most interesting. Lots of other things, that, but nothing lasted as long as it. There's How still, long did that last? Well, I started it before I left Oklahoma, and... Uh, then Northridge earthquake occurred, and that it extended it. Matter of fact, today I was asked by MBMA if I would do some more testing. Oh, so it's still going on. Yes. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the greatest reward you've received from teaching for so many years? Well, the reward from teaching, of course, is uh, the students and the success of a great number of them, including guys like Mark Holland and... Uh, oh, he was one of your students. Yeah. Oh, Ron Ming and Brad Davis. Uh-huh. All who are members of either the manual or specification committee or both. Uh-huh. Linda Hannigan, who's at Penn State. Clint Rex, who's on the specification and manual committee now, I guess. It, it's just great to see 
young people like that succeed. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to a student that's graduating now and starting his or her career? Get involved in professional activities with local section of ASCE. Obviously, if you can get on some committees with AISC, that would be fantastic. Read, <laughs> read journals, read trade magazines, you know, keep up with specification changes, and I'm sure you'll be very successful if they do that. You've been a longtime friend of the Institute and very involved in committee work. Uh, serving on various technical committees for the specification and also on the manuals committee. So how has AISC changed since you first became involved? <laughs> well, the staff has gotten a lot younger. <laughs> no question about that. <laughs> the membership of the committees is much, much larger than it used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the first non-fabricator engineer to be on the manual committee. Really? Somewhere around 1989. At that time, I think there were 13 members now, 40-plus, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, I joined the specification committee in about eight, 1986, and there was probably 30 or 35, and just had lunch with, must be 100. About 100, uh-huh. Yeah, they're not all on the committee, but they're all involved. I think there's much better what used to be national engineering conferences now that the that the fabrication side is involved as well in the exhibition hall and so forth. So. Mm -hmm. Big changes. Big changes. Right. And obviously electronic approaches to things. Yes, our technology changes does everything. Keep, yes, yeah. keeps moving right. us forward. Right. At AISC we, we depend greatly on our volunteers that serve on our uh, specification committee and task committees uh, that are so generous with their time. So what do you get out of serving on these committees? First you get to know the best of the best and that that's really important. Obviously, state-of-the-art knowledge of where steel is going as far as research and design and specifications. I'd just say there's great experiences with many, many outstanding individuals. Uh, you just mentioned the um, steel conferences. Uh, you've no doubt attended a lot of them over the years. Um, which one was your favorite? Favorite? I don't know. <laughs> Memorable. Uh, two of them. One was the first one that I went to in uh, 1964 in Omaha and I remember to this day two of the speakers and uh, one of them was on the faculty at what was then the University of Omaha. After I finished my master's at Lehigh I decided to try to teach a year to see if I really wanted to do it before investing in a PhD and because of him I, I applied for a position at Omaha and, and taught there for one year. Well, the other one was, I don't know the year, it was in Chicago, and the event, if you will, was we all took a train to Gary, Indiana, and toured, uh, I guess it was a U.S. Steel mill there. Mm -hmm. and That's had, quite a tour. Yeah, but we had dinner and cocktails on the train, which was oh. really neat, really, mm -hmm. really neat event. Mm -hmm. uh, you have an affinity for trains. Yes. Yes. My father was a railroad man. He worked on the Illinois Central between Chicago and, and uh, Sioux City and Omaha and Council Bluffs, Iowa, mm -hmm. although we lived in the middle of the area. And his idea, he, he was a conductor, his idea of vacation was to ride a different train. So before I got out of high school, I had been in 40 states and five provinces by train. Wow. And one of our last trips, we were in a head-on collision of two steam-powered passenger trains just outside of Edmonton, Canada. Yeah. Wow. And no one was killed, and there was no one really seriously injured. But the trains hit, and the baggage cars behind the tenders of the steam engines both telescoped up on top of them, such that you could walk beneath it. And I think I've been in the last head-on collision of two steam-powered passenger trains in North America. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, 
That's not going to happen again because there's not that many steam engines left. Well, yeah, just the, you were on a steam engine recently. That's yeah, <laughs> interesting. Uh, two and a half years ago, my 69th birthday, my wife rented a steam engine for me in Ely, Nevada, which is about four-hour drive straight north of Las Vegas, and uh, I had to take a test and passed the test, and then I was able to act as the engineer, and they let her sit in the fireman's side. So you actually got to, to drive? Yeah. Operate. Operate. <laughs> yeah. And we took it eight or nine miles up the mountain, and then they turned it around. They wouldn't let me do that, mm. and then back down again. So what was on the test? Oh, just technical things. Mm-hmm. With the, you had to learn a number of the whistle signals, what they meant, and okay. what you're supposed to so do. So you knew all of that already, or did you have to study for it? Oh, I studied. I didn't want to flunk it. <laughs> <laughs> but but you kind of knew it all already. Right. An interesting thing happened on, <clears throat> on the way back down. The engineer took the whistle away from me, and he played a tune on it. And I said, what's that all about? And he said, oh, I'm just saying hello to the girls. That's a cat house down there. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, it's, it's legal in, in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> You're known for your work in many areas, uh, one of which is floor vibration. Why did you become interested in that specifically? Well, there was a fellow named Ken Lenzen at the University of Kansas who was really the guy that started research in this area in about 1964, 65, I guess. And there was a professor at Kansas that I had known from Lehigh, and he recommended that I, I go to Kansas and study with Lenzen to work on this problem. I was attracted to it because it was a system problem and it had humans involved and and, uh, there's no definite answer. Mm -hmm. It's a subjective thing. So I started working with him on it thinking I would do my dissertation in that area, but I didn't. Uh, Funding ran out, so I did something else. And then uh, when I went to Oklahoma, there was a missing link in the design procedure and got a little funding from AISC to finish that link and then it just went on from there. I started, gave my first talk, I guess, at a breakfast meeting in about 1972. And Still giving been, talks about it now. Yes, even mm-hmm. now, even a couple of weeks ago in Columbia, South America. Yes. Uh, speaking of which, you, you lecture around the world these days. Um, what's your favorite destination? Well, I'd have to say Australia and particularly Sydney. I did a, a, a sabbatical in Sydney and it's, a, it's really a great place, great people, and mm-hmm. great country. How long were you there for your sabbatical? Six months. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah it's a good time. Very mm-hmm. good time. In such a long and illustrious career, what are you most proud of? Three things, I think. Membership in the National Academy of Engineering, which is a real honor. Mm-hmm. The Jerry Heyer Award. I think I'm the, the sixth recipient of, it, recipient of it. Interestingly, five of the six are Lehigh-associated. Lots of times people talk about the Lehigh Mafia. They yeah. certainly have dominated that award. And obviously having a building named after you when you can still go read the sign. Is it true that one of your sons is a UPS driver? Well, driver in the sense he drives airplanes. Yes, he's a he's an international pilot. Flies 757s and 767s for UPS. Wow! In to Europe and around Europe and to the Far East and around the Far East. Yeah, that's and quite a driver. I kind of got in between the two transportation people in my family. My father being a railroad man and my son being an airplane pilot. I'm told that you have a number of interesting stories about your experiences while flying. (laughs) Could you tell us some of them? Something that's happened to me very recently that was kind of neat. My wife and I were coming back from Zurich in uh, early October this year. We had been upgraded because of status 
to the first row in first class, and it was a 767. Well, my son always talks about the cockpit in a 767, and there's no way to get into a UPS air aircraft because of security. So I walked up to the cockpit, flight's over eight hours, so they have three pilots, and stuck my head in there, asked the third pilot, what they call a reserve first officer, if mind if I took a look around. Yeah, come on in. So I stepped up into the cockpit, and the captain turned around, and well, I, I told the, the reserve officer that my son was a UPS pilot, and I just wanted to see what his workplace looked like. Mm -hmm. The captain turned around and looked at me, and I immediately told him the same story, and he got up and said, well, I'm Joe such and such, and this is Sam, this is Pete, whatever, and sh shook hands with everybody. He said, here, have a seat. So he let me sit in first class, in it first class in the captain's seat. <laughs> That's really first class, yeah. the captain's seat. Yeah, and uh, they like said, the fun plane. <laughs> well, I played around with the yoke, said I thought I could do this. And uh, he said, do you have a camera? And I said, no, but my wife does, and she's back there in 1A, and he, well, I'll go get it. So he went back, kind of surprised the heck out of her. I bet. And came back up and took my picture. So, wow, yeah. Yeah. that well, is some first-class service. Yeah, that was pretty neat. That, that is was pretty neat. neat. I'm not That's sure really that would happen in the U.S., and I'm not sure he wants to have it broadcast <laughs> around the country. But We won't say who he is. Uh, yeah. Did you ever um, have any interest in learning to fly yourself? No. No. no, no. When my son was learning to fly, I went with him a few times, but he wanted to teach me, but I just... Any other flying stories? Oh, I've been in a Code 1 landing one night. And it, there is no such thing as Code 0. Is that just an emergency? Emergency, landing. yeah. Yeah. We took off from Charlotte to go to Roanoke and got to 10,000 feet. The flight attendant was starting to pour drinks, soft drinks for everybody, and they buzzed her from the uh, cockpit, and uh, she turned to ashing. I happened to be sitting in the first row, it was a commuter plane, and she took all the, the drinks and just threw them in the bag and came on and said, pilot has just told me that he can't steer this aircraft, we're going back, and I, I suggest you read the, uh, the card and learn how to brace. Oh my. Clear night, we very slowly turned around and went back to Charlotte, got close to landing, and he came on and said, brace. It's interesting, if you read the card, there's different ways to brace, depending on where you're sitting, which I didn't know. Oh yes, I don't know that either. <laughs> yeah. We landed, and uh, the fire trucks were coming over the horizon, and he said, well, we're gonna taxi back to the terminal. He went 200 feet, and he said, I can't steer the aircraft. Turned out that there was a major hydraulic failure, that the hydraulic system that uh, controlled the tail and the uh, front wheel are in the same system, and it failed, and was talking it? to my son afterwards, and said, you know, how, how do you fly this thing if you, if you, if you can't operate the rudder? And he said, Dad, as best you can. <laughs> yeah. and he he kind of got a little quiet there when we were talking about this. So, yeah, yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Funny thing that happened after that is that an hour later there happened to be another same aircraft, same crew, all but one passenger got back in it. And the flight attendant said, I know you've just heard this, but I have to do it again. A different airplane. So she was reading the safety thing, and she stopped and she said, well, that's one way to get you to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure everybody was very much paying attention. Yeah. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Uh-huh. You mean now? Anytime. Well, we're talking about engineering, of course. It's a chance to work on unique problems, especially in the floor vibration area. I get a lot of calls from engineers. Mm -hmm. That's fun. Mm -hmm. I like doing that. I like working with a couple of former students, especially who I didn't mention earlier and should have, Brad Davis at the University of Kentucky and I do a lot of work on flood vibrations together. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm hoping he will succeed me as, a, as someone who can write design guides and so forth on uh -huh. the subject. So you're teaching him well to make sure he does that. We work together. He teaches me a lot too. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else inspire you? No, the AISC. <laughs> oh, we <laughs> like the to hear that. And the committee work. 
yeah, in the research projects and things. And was there anybody that inspired you when you were young, a mentor or, or somebody that? I, mean, I didn't know anything about engineering. My father was born in 1893. He was 47 when I was born and had an eighth grade education. He didn't know anything about engineering. My mother, 10th grade education, so. And there was nobody in my family that knew a thing about engineering, so. So you forged the way. Yeah. If you weren't involved in the engineering industry, what other profession do you think you would have liked? You know, I've been asked that question at parties. That's a little <laughs> game that people play, and I always give the dull answer. Oh, well. Yeah. I, I'm perfectly happy with what I've done in my life. Well, you I know. think that's a good answer. Yeah. I've, that's a good uh, answer. I got to work for a steel fabricator on some unique projects. When I was at Lehigh in the summers, I worked for Bethlehem Steel, and first in erection engineering, then bridge engineering, and saw a lot of neat stuff. And enjoyed the two or three schools that I've taught at. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a good research life. project I've had, and I'm perfectly happy with what I've done. Well, that's good. See, that's great to be able to say that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me again today, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us next month when my guest will be Roger Furch, president of AISC. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.